Good morning, church. Good to see you all. So please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. I am titling this sermon, The Law Through the Gospel. And hopefully that'll make a little sense at some point. But um, once you're at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I will be reading... I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So Jesus says this. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, I don't even know where to start. (laughs) God, just be with us as we come to your word. This is a very complex subject, as you know, Lord. You know how your people have struggled to understand this, and uh, I am among them struggling to understand this, Lord. So please, just give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what is in your your text, what what you're saying here, And, uh, and may we obey it, Lord. Please remove me as much as possible, Lord. Please um, just illuminate the text. Please, uh, Lord, just encourage your people. Correct your people where we need to be corrected, but encourage us, Lord. Um, And we pray if there's anybody that doesn't know you, uh, just when they see who you are, Lord Jesus, that they would repent and come to you and believe and be saved. And Lord, we just pray that in everything we do here that you get glorified. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all of this. Amen. Please have a seat. So normally when I start a sermon, I try to break us in and get us thinking about the the issue or the subject that the text is addressing. Well, I'm not going to do that this time because we are coming to probably one of the most difficult texts in the entire Bible. And let me be a little clearer about that. The text itself is pretty straightforward. Its logic is easy to follow. That's not where the difficulty arises. The difficulty comes in the subject that the text introduces. Our text is talking about the law of Moses or the Old Testament law. So the question is, how does the law of Moses relate to the church or relate to Christians? This question has divided the Christian church more than probably any other issue. Now, there are two answers that are at the extreme borders of this question. One answer would be total continuity, and the other would be total discontinuity. And all that means is some would argue that the law of Moses applies to the church just as it did, almost in identical fashion, as it would to Old Testament Israel. Like, think of Seventh-day Adventists. That would be total continuity. Others would argue that it doesn't apply to the church at all, even in the slightest, but was only a temporary thing that was abolished once Jesus came. That would be total discontinuity. And then, of course, you have a whole bunch of positions that try to be between these two sides, but none of them could hit the middle. It's impossible. You're either going to lean closer to one side or the other. 
Now, a moment ago, I said that this has caused more division than any other issue. And by that, I don't mean like the bad kind of division. Some division is inherently sinful and it's bad. Not talking about that. Instead, what I'm talking about is there are some topics of Scripture that are so difficult to navigate that you're bound to get different faithful people offering different answers. These are faithful people trying to offer what they think is a biblical answer to a very hard question. And as I said, answering this question has caused a lot of division. In fact, most of the big theological systems that you may have heard of really exist because of this question. Dispensationalism, Reformed theology, Lutheranism, and theonomy, which falls under Reformed theology. These are just to name a few, and the whole reason they exist is because they're trying to understand this issue. They're distinct answers to this question. Now, you might not know what any of those things are that I just mentioned, and you don't necessarily need to know. My point in bringing it up is that trying to figure out how the Old Testament law and even the rest of the Old Testament how it relates to us as Christians, that's a big issue. And it cannot be answered by this text alone. In fact, it takes a whole theological system to answer it. And you might be wondering why. Like, why with this one do we need more than just the text? It's because the Bible gives us statements that seem to say different things about this subject. And I think you could tell from the text itself. When I read it, if we're being honest with ourselves, it seems that Jesus is saying that the law is still in effect. But at the same time, some of you are instantly going to the letters of Paul. And you're saying, wait a minute, Paul says a lot of times that we are not under the law. But then the same Paul says we do keep the law. So which is it? Is the law still in effect or has it passed away? Or instead, has only part of it passed away? And if so, what part? How do we know what part? How do we determine which Old Testament laws are still in effect and which ones are not? How do we do this without being arbitrary? And all that means is how do we do it without making it up as we go along? Because I'm afraid that's what happens a lot. Let me just give you a quick sample of why this is so difficult. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, Paul says, Before this faith came, we were confined under the law imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law, then, was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Seems pretty clear. Okay, Christ came. That's the faith we're waiting for. So we're no longer under a guardian. And Paul identifies the guardian as the law. He's saying, instead, we are under faith in Christ, not the law. But before you get too excited, those of you who love discontinuity, the same Paul, 10 years later, in Romans chapter 3, verse 31 says, do we then nullify the law through faith? He's talking about that same faith. Do we nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Okay, so now the continuity of folks are like, yes, we uphold the law. But... In the same book of Romans, just three chapters later, in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but you're under grace. You're thinking, all right. And then you come to the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 12. He says, So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy and just and good. So wait, the law is good. Hmm. But then three chapters later, in Romans 10, verse 4, he says, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
Now, I will give a little bit of comment on that one. I think that's a bad translation. The word end in the Greek is telos, and it more likely means he is the goal or the purpose of the law, not the termination of it. But let's just assume this is saying that. Okay, let's take it as the translators put it here. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But then the same Paul, in one of the last books he writes, 1 Timothy, he writes this in 1 Timothy 1.8. He says, but we know the law is good provided one uses it legitimately. So maybe the law isn't the end, or maybe the law isn't ended for those who believe in Christ since it's good provided that we use it legitimately. And honestly, I think that verse there is probably the best way to try to understand this all. I think it shows us that Paul's problem is not with the law itself, but when it's used illegitimately. If you're using the law to try to be saved, you're wrong. I think that's what he's getting at. But I just want to be clear. There's a lot more passages than I brought up that could be brought up on both sides uh, that seem to speak to both sides of this. That's why it's confusing. That's why this is so hard. But I think you get the point. Now, some folks ask, well, then does Paul contradict himself? He seems to be going back and forth. And the answer is no. I mean, I had the privilege of spending two years taking us through the book of Romans where we took every single one of those passages. And when you see them in all their context, they are all in harmony with each other. But I don't have time to rehash the whole book of Romans today. In case you haven't noticed, we're in Matthew. Can't go back and re-preach Romans. So we got to focus on our text at hand. And we got to try to answer this big question. We want to ask and answer this question. In what sense are we not under the law, but then at the same time, we uphold the law and we use it legitimately? By the end of this sermon, I'm going to try to answer that. But please do understand that there are limitations to what can be accomplished in a single sermon on a Sunday morning. Uh, Some of you saw my Facebook post. I had to read over 500 pages to pre- this week, it's hard. It's a lot of reading. I had to read over 500 pages to prepare for this sermon because I knew this subject was coming up. I cannot distill 500 pages worth of knowledge down into a single sermon. And also, we have to keep in mind, I'm preaching through Matthew. I'm not preaching a series on the law and the gospel. I'm not preaching a systematic theology of the law in the church. So I say all of that to let you know that the sermon will not be the final word, not even close, not claiming it to be. But here's what I would like to do. I would like to provide you with three things. First, a biblical exposition of our text, because that's why we're here. And then second, I would like to at least attempt to offer a biblical answer to how the law right now relates to the Christian. And then third, I would like to give some practical advice for how to use the law. It's going to take a little while to do all that, just to let you know. But with that, we do need to focus on the text itself, and then we'll dive into those other issues. Now, the last thing Jesus told us is that we are salt and light, and that our good works need to be on display so that the world will glorify God. What Jesus says next has everything to do with that. He tells us to be salt and light. He tells us to show our good works, and then he tells us about the law. So these go together. Now, we have to ask, what is the main point of the text? What is he teaching? And I think if we let the words speak for themselves, it's this. He is saying that God's law is binding for the life of the believer. Now, we got to understand how and in what sense, but this is what he's saying. God's law is binding for the life of the believer. Now, why? 
Why can I say that? Well, Jesus tells us why by making two points. His first point in verses 17 and 18 is that the law is permanent. That's what he's going to show us. His first point is the law is permanent. And then the second thing, verses 19 and 20, he's going to show us the implications of that. So the law is permanent and there's implications of that. So let's first look at him showing us or at least teaching us that the law is permanent. We'll see this in verses 17 and 18. If you look at the first part of verse 17, just the first half of it, Jesus, in clear terms, says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That's what he says. Quite the declaration. You have a large number of Christians that claim that Jesus did away with the law. They claim that the work of Christ set the law aside, and yet Jesus himself starts off saying, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. And listen, when he says law or prophets, let me just give you the translation of that. Old Testament. They didn't use the word Old Testament back then because they didn't have the New Testament yet. So what they, the label they used was law and prophets. That covers the whole Old Testament. The law or the Torah covers the first five books, and then the prophets captures everything else. So, That's what Jesus is saying. I did not come to abolish the Old Testament. Now, this interests me because it took me a while to get this. Why? When I first became a Christian, it was with the Churches of Christ denomination. And I know they'll say we're not a denomination. Yes, yes, they are. Uh, And what they taught is they taught that we are New Testament Christians. And the Old Testament is completely set aside. They would say the Old Testament and the law has been nailed to the cross according to Colossians chapter 2. So the only thing we're supposed to follow is what we see explicitly stated in the New Testament. We are only obligated to keep an Old Testament command if it's repeated in the New Testament. Now, of course, they're wrong. That passage in Colossians doesn't say the law was nailed to the cross. It says the penalty of the law was nailed to the cross. That's a very different thing. Furthermore, I have to ask myself, and the whole time I was there, I was with them eight years, I've never seen them explain Jesus' statement here. Never even saw an attempt. They're actually saying the opposite. I mean, think about what he says. He says, don't think I came to abolish the Old Testament. And then they would tell me every week, he abolished the Old Testament. I don't know how you put that together. And they're not the only ones who say that. The Lutherans say that. But they get there by different means. And not just the Lutherans. The dispensationalists say that. And they get there by even different means. And by the way, I would say with dispensationalism and movements like Calvary Chapel and stuff like that, that view represents the majority of Christians in our country on the ground levels that the law is completely set aside. But at the end of the day, Jesus opens up by telling us he did not come to abolish the Old Testament and its law. So there has to be a better answer. And one more thing before we we move on is this is the first time this subject comes up in the New Testament. Remember, Matthew, at least in the canonical order of books, is the first book of the New Testament. So if you open to the New Testament and you're just reading an order, this is the first time you come to this subject of the law and how it relates to the believer. And furthermore, Jesus is bringing this up in his Sermon on the Mount which is his manifesto for the kingdom of God, his manifesto for his disciples. So because of that, what I'm trying to get across here is that this passage is what is called programmatic. And what that means is this is the primary passage. 
It sets the stage for how we are to understand all the other passages. A lot of people set this one to the side and go to their favorite Paul passage, right? But no, this is the one that sets the stage. Everything has to be built and understood upon this one, okay? And so, if this is the programmatic passage and the Lord in the clearest terms tells us that he did not come to abolish the law, then it tells you right there that the law and the rest of the Old Testament is not abolished. And one more thing before moving on. The word abolish in the Greek, kataluo, literally means to put to an end, to set aside, or to tear down. That's what it means. So he's saying, I did not put to an end, set aside, or tear down the law. In fact, he expands on this with the rest of verse 17. If he didn't come to abolish it, then what does he plan to do with the law and the prophets? Look at the second half of verse 17. He says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, the word fulfill is the key to understanding this whole text. And it's also the key, in my opinion, to understanding this entire subject. So we have to ask and answer, what does it mean to fulfill? And this word has a lot of possible definitions. You guys know if you go to a Webster dictionary, you look up any word, it's got multiple definitions, and you know it never means all of them at once. It means only one of those given the context. Well, we have to do the same thing here. You can't take all the definitions of fulfill and apply it to this text. Now, the word is plerao, and again, let me go through just quickly some of these meanings. One meaning of fulfill is to actually terminate something. By fulfilling it. So let's say I owed you $500, we're in a contract. That contract is only in effect until I fulfill it. How do I fulfill it? Pay you 500 bucks, contract is terminated. It's abolished at that point. But that can't be what Jesus means. Because he just said, I didn't come to abolish. And use a clear word that means abolish. He says, but to fulfill. So whatever he means by fulfill can't mean set aside. It can't mean abolish or termination. That would make no sense. He would have literally contradicted himself one half of a sentence later. Now, the word fulfill could also mean like fulfilling prophecies or predictions. And there is definitely some level of that being true. But here's the thing. If you read the law and you read the prophets, is it all predictions? No. The vast majority of it is it telling us how to live and how to please God. So if he's fulfilling it, then that leads to another definition, possible definition, that Jesus himself kept it perfectly, that we all fail to keep the law and the prophets, but he keeps it perfectly. And by the way, that's true. That's the basis of our justification. We are justified by faith because when we believe, Paul tells us God gives us the credit of Jesus's fulfillment of the law. So that is one meaning of it, but that is not what is being talked about in our text. We have to get that elsewhere, and it's true, but that's not how Jesus is using fulfillment here. Otherwise, the rest of the text really doesn't make any sense. Um, so we got to keep that in mind. Now, another meaning of this is it, it to fulfill is to give true meaning to something that you only have a partial meaning of. So the best way I've seen this one described is, let's say you're in a dark room, it's filled with furniture, and you got multiple candles so you could see it all. Okay, but it's still dim. And then let's say now noon comes and you open all the windows on every side of the room. Now you could see every nook and cranny. That would be fulfilling. Like you were able to see it before, but now you could see it in its most clear form because it's been illuminated by, by more stuff, right? And that is one way pleruo means. It means to fill up, to fill up the dark room with light. 
And related to that is another meaning that it could take something and show you the deeper meaning of it. So I say all that to let you know this word has a wide semantic range. So the question then is, how do we know which one is being used by Matthew here? It's simple. You ask yourself, how has Matthew been using this word for the entire Gospel of Matthew? He's already used this word seven times before this point, and he'll use it almost that many times after. And so we just have to ask ourselves, what have we already seen? How is he using this word? Well, what have we noticed? We do notice he did fulfill predictions like the virgin birth, um, but he also fulfilled the story of Israel itself. Israel was called out of Egypt. So was Jesus. Israel's children were murdered by a tyrant near Bethlehem in the days of Jeremiah. And the same thing happened in the life of Jesus due to King Herod's wickedness. Israel had to cross over the Jordan River to begin its mission that God gave them. Jesus had to cross through the Jordan River through baptism before he began his mission. Isaiah showed us that the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, they were the first to go into exile, the first to be under the darkness of the Gentiles. And Jesus being the one who ends the exile, where does he bring the gospel then? To Zebulun and Naphtali, where he shines the light there and the exile starts to end. So again, it all points to him. We can't forget what we saw when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. The spirit descended upon him like a dove as the sky was tore open. And then you start to think, well, where's that in the Old Testament? Isaiah 64, 1, when Israel is praying for their final deliverance, they say, God, tear open the heavens and let your spirit fall on us. And that happened literally to Jesus. Multiple times in Isaiah, it says God will place his Holy Spirit in this most complete way on the person who's called the servant of the Lord, God's special servant. Well, who is the servant of the Lord? I've already showed you many times that first he is said to be the nation of Israel who will bring God's light to the nations. But then there's the servant of the Lord who seems to be an individual that has to save Israel and then save the nations. And so it's both. It's both. It means that the servant of the Lord is both Israel and the perfect singular representative of them, where the corporate fails, but the singular succeeds. But if the singular and the corporate are both the servant of the Lord, it makes sense that their histories parallel each other. So think of this. Israel began as a miracle baby in the womb of Sarah with the conception of Isaac. Jesus begins as the miracle baby of miracle babies, being conceived and born of a virgin. Israel is then called out of Egypt. Jesus is then called out of Egypt. Israel is then said to be baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. Jesus is baptized into the Jordan River. After Israel goes through the Red Sea, they go into the wilderness for 40 years and fail some major temptations. After Jesus is baptized, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and succeeds at those same temptations, as as Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8 shows us. Okay, And then Israel receives the law of God from a mountain. And yet here Jesus is given the Sermon on the Mount where he's expounding the law in its most full way. In addition to this, we can't forget that God calls Jesus his son when he comes out of the water. Yet Exodus 4.22, God says Israel is his firstborn son. Jesus is called the son of God. Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, the sons of David are called the son of God. And then, just one more, God calls him my beloved son. There's only one other time where those two words go together, beloved son. And it's when God told Abraham to take Isaac, his beloved son, 
and to go and sacrifice him. Now, of course, God calls Abraham off, and the point was God would provide the lamb, and that lamb happens to be God's own beloved son. And then let me add one more. Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 18 that God would send a prophet like Moses. There's been no other prophet like Moses. Moses delivers God's people, gives them God's law, and brings them to the promised land, to the cusp of it, right? So that means the the new Moses, the better prophet, is going to do the same thing, but in a better way. It has to be a better deliverance from sin and death. It has to be a better law, or at least a better application of the law, as we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount, and it has to be a better promised land, new heavens, new earth. And so Jesus is even a fulfillment of Moses and the prophet like Moses, So my point with this is Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. And the way he fulfills it is in his own life, he recapitulates the history of Israel. But he does it perfectly. And he doesn't just recapitulate their history, but he also fulfills the system of sacrifices, which is a huge part of the law. He fulfills that by being the perfect sacrifice that they all pointed to once and for all. Furthermore, why are there no kings of Israel sitting on the throne today? Because he fulfills the kings of Israel, because he is the perfect king that lives forever. Every aspect of the Old Testament in some way points to our Lord Jesus. Even the exile is fulfilled by Jesus because he's the one who brings the end to the exile. The temple is fulfilled by Jesus because he in his own person is God with us in the flesh, tabernacling or templing with us in the flesh. If Jesus abolished the law and the prophets, then he would, would he not be discrediting his own ministry? The very things that tell us who he is, if he's saying they're no more, then how could we trust them? Okay, so the very fact that he fulfills these mean that they still in some way have to be valid. Otherwise, a big witness to him gets lost. He fulfills every jot and tittle of the Old Testament. And therefore, that means every jot and tittle is true. So... With all that in mind, going back to the possible meanings of fulfill, Jesus did fulfill predictions. He also fulfilled the Old Testament's events, customs, and history because it all pointed to him. And let me just go a little further with it. Even the feasts of Israel, Passover, he died on Passover. First fruits, he raised from the dead on first fruits. Pentecost, he poured out the Holy Spirit and birthed the church on Pentecost. The Feast of Tabernacles, it is pretty easy to argue that he was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. I put something out every Christmas about that on Facebook. I I could walk you through that at a different time. The point is, he's fulfilling all these things. So what that means is he is giving the deeper sense of what all this stuff means. He's showing us that the Old Testament is more than just about Israel being saved from Egypt and Israel getting the law at Mount Sinai and Israel wandering for 40 years and Israel receiving the promised land. It's about more than that. But here is where people in the church continuously make an error. They think that since the Old Testament is more than those things, then it's no longer those things. And that's not true. That's a a categorical error or fallacy in, in one's thinking. It's still about deliverance from Egypt. It's still about God's promises to Israel. It's still about the land of promise. Those are what the words say and mean. It's no less than that. But what Jesus' work shows is at the exact same time, it's about a lot more than that. Okay, so it's like being in the room. You could tell what the furniture is. But once the light comes in, you know even more about it. 
And you know even more of what it points to. So it's both. See, people have this wrong tendency to reject the particular for the universal. And we get that from Plato, not from the Bible. And what I mean by that is the law of Israel is about a particular people and a particular land. Whereas the new covenant seems to be about a universal people and a universal land, new heavens, new earth. But my point is the Bible does not replace one with the other. It diagonalizes them and connects them together where both then remain true at the same time. That is why it presents salvation as Jew and Gentile together as equal and co-heirs of one body. But think about it. To have something be equal, there still has to be two. For to have the word co, there still has to be two. Yes, the two are united into one, but they don't lose their distinction. The Gentiles are the universal portion. Israel is the particular portion, and it's both. They're diagonalized together. That is how the scripture consistently presents the church. So getting back to to what, what I'm saying here is Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets by showing us the deeper meaning of them. He shows us what the law really means without denying what it meant before he showed us the deeper sense. He fulfills it by filling the room with light to where we could see it in its complete sense. And he fulfills types and shadows like the sacrificial system or Shabbat, which makes it to where you don't need those anymore. Okay, They're not abolished. Okay, That's the wrong word. They still exist. For example, think of the sacrificial system. Do you still need atonement? Do you still need cleansing or purification? The need hasn't disappeared, but they are now always and forever fulfilled by the work of Christ. I want you to think about what 1 John 1.9 says. A lot of us have this memorized, but we don't pay attention to the specifics of it. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, so forgive us, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, okay? So in the Old Testament sacrifices, it was for forgiveness and cleansing, not just forgiveness. The difference was you brought an animal to the temple and to the priest, and then you get the atonement and the cleansing. But what John's telling us is you don't bring an animal to the temple, to the high priest, we have the true high priest, Jesus. You just go to him with your confession. And then because of his once and for all sacrifice, you are forever forgiven and forever cleansed. But the law is still there. It's just fulfilled and applied in a different way. And so the way we keep it is different. That's why it makes no sense to bring a goat to some temple anymore. But that's not the same as abolishing. That's that's what it would look like to fulfill it, that you're still actually keeping it, but in the most true, complete way. Now, I do need to get back to my point about this word fulfill. Multiple definitions of the word fulfill all apply here, and they all help us understand this tension that we see in the Bible. On the one hand, the law is still in effect, but Jesus is showing us the deeper meaning, right? And so he's giving us the ability to live by it and keep the law in a better way than Israel ever could have before Jesus came. But at the same time, by Jesus fulfilling types and shadows that all pointed to him, he shows us that some of these laws do not need to be kept in the same way anymore. But the law as a whole is still valid. And there's so many passages that we could look at that could help us understand this. But as I said, we got limitations. I can only, you know, talk about this so much. I think 
The big problem we run into in the church is people think of fulfillment like that $500 contract example, and it's just not that. It can't be that. Jesus refuses us that option. He was very clear in in verse 17 that the law and the prophets are not abolished. So, and just so that no one will miss it, he's now going to escalate this in verse 18. In fact, he's going to ground it. He starts with the word for. And whenever you see the word for, it's giving you the reason for, why he, for what he just said. So he just told us that the law is not, he did not come to abolish the law. Why? Well, let's look at verse 18. He says, for truly... I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So why is it true he did not come to abolish the law? Because until the universe is destroyed and remade, he is telling us not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass away from the law. And one more Unrelated note, if anybody ever tells you that Jesus did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, just bring them to this verse. It's not just every word that's inspired. He's saying every letter's inspired. And not just every letter, every little hook of a letter. And what that refers to is a seraph. Like in Hebrew, the way you could tell some letters apart from the others is just this little hook that comes at the the end of the letter. So he's saying the smallest letter, the yod or the iota, not that won't be abolished. And the smallest little ornamentation on a letter won't be abolished. Every little bit of it counts. There's no stronger statement for inerrancy that anyone could ever make. Now, some... We'll try to get out of what he says here, though, by the last clause. He says this will be the case that not one letter or stroke of a letter will pass away. This will be the case, quote, until all things are accomplished. And what they'll say is they'll say, well, the all things have been accomplished. The all things are the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so now all of that has passed away. But the problem with this is is obvious. That's not the only statement that has until in it. In fact, there's two until statements. And what he says about the law is sandwiched between them. And so if you go back and look at the first one, he says, truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass away until all things are accomplished. The two until statements are the same thing. The all things is also the passing away of heaven and earth. And people try to come up with weird explanations of this. But Isaiah Second Peter and Revelation all tell us about the old heavens and old earth being replaced by the new heavens and new earth, and that happens after the resurrection of the dead. So the all things that he's talking about, they're talking about the same thing. Okay, Some people try to say, well, yeah, he said heavens and earth, but what he really meant was death, burial, and resurrection, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Okay, So until the day of resurrection, every letter... And every little ornamentation of every letter still stands. Now, that means there's heavy work we have to do, though, to rightly divide the word. Jesus is going to declare, like, all foods to be clean. He's going to make it clear the sacrificial system and its laws are no more, especially in the book of Hebrews. So we have to explain that. See, Jesus' fulfillment of those things rendered them either obsolete or, you know, that's at worst or, or at best, they are just kept now in a different way. But it doesn't, whichever position, it doesn't render them unimportant. Every jot and tittle still points to him. They still teach you about him. They still teach you about God. In some way, we still obey them and keep them. They still sanctify our heart and our mind. Therefore, the letters and the strokes of the letters still stand. 
And I'll just add this really quickly. Nobody except heretics is saying that you're saved by keeping the law. We're justified by faith alone through grace alone. The question is, how are we sanctified? How do we become more like our Lord Jesus? Calvin rightly said there's a third use of the law, that the Holy Spirit writes the what on our hearts? The law on our hearts. That's the new covenant promise. And so the Holy Spirit through the law on our hearts, that's how he makes us more like Jesus. So the question is, what does it mean for the law to be on our hearts? And I think that's all wrapped up and related to what Jesus is telling us. So anyhow, it goes without saying that Jesus in verses 17 and 18 made it clear that the law is permanent until the world passes away. Okay, that's the first point he makes. Now, the second point he makes is that this has implications for us. And I think these implications are impossible to escape. In the first half of verse 19, he gives a frightening warning, if you look at it. He says, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So, remember, when you see the word therefore, you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And, and what that means is it's always pointing back to what was just said. So what was just said? I haven't come to abolish the law. Not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass away. Therefore, in light of that fact, this is what you need to know. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, I I think it's a, a fact that most people or a lot of people, when they break a law, they want to teach others to break the law as well. And so it escalates. And so he brings both of those up here. But Christ is saying you can't even do that for the least of the laws. And with him saying it this way, this makes it clear that not all the laws are equal. He says the least. If some are least, then some are greater. And so when you're telling people, well, all sin is the same, it's not. Some sin is worse than others. All sin will get you in hell. But that's just like a pithy platitude that Americans say. It's not from the Bible. If you think that Deuteronomy 22.7, which tells you not to eat a bird and its eggs, is equal to honoring your mother and father in Exodus 20 verse 12, then I think we got some things mixed up. Yet both of those laws give you the promise. Honor your mother and father so you'll live long in the land. Don't eat the bird with its eggs so you'll live long in the land. Both have the same promise, which is very interesting. But the rabbis recognized one is greater One is lesser, but we got to keep them all. And Jesus is more or less saying the same thing here. So he's telling you whether it's one of the big commands, like don't murder, or the small commands, like don't move a boundary marker of somebody's inheritance. He's like, you must not break these, and you must not teach others to do the same. Otherwise, you will be least in the kingdom. And of course, people always want to know, what does that mean? What does it mean to be least in the kingdom? There's debate. Verse 20 is going to talk about people not getting into the kingdom at all. So some will argue that being least is just another way of saying you're not going to get in the kingdom at all. Others will say, nah, they're different enough. And so what this talks about is loss of rewards. So you'll still be saved, but who wants to be walking around the kingdom where God's saying, ah, there's Stephen, least of the kingdom. You know, there's Ronnie, great in the kingdom. So the the point is that the carrot and stick that's being applied here is live a faithful life. That way we'll be great in the kingdom and not least in the kingdom. Now, in the second half of verse 19, Jesus pretty much tells us what he wants us to do. He says, but whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
So he seems to have the expectation that his disciples keep the commands and teach others to do the same. And then if we do, we're great in the kingdom. And again, this goes with all those other statements in the Gospels and in Paul's letters where there seems to be rewards. Like we're all saved by grace through faith equally, but our rewards for all eternity seem in some measure to be based on our faithfulness during this life. And that's probably what Jesus is getting at here. But I don't want to bog us down on that. The point is, he says that the law will not pass away. And the first implication is don't break the least of them. Don't teach others to do so. Instead, keep them and teach others to keep them. Now, the second implication is in verse 20. And at first glance, it looks even bigger. Jesus says this. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to notice that begins with the word for again. That means it's giving you the why of what was just said. Why is it important to keep the law and to teach others to do the same? Because if your righteousness is not greater than the scribes or the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom. So these have to be related. And I'll explain why in a moment. But first, I just want to say this is profound for a number of reasons. First, the Pharisees and the scribes were the most meticulous keepers of the law in their day. They even created a man-made oral law as a hedge around the law to make sure that they didn't break it. So to the audience back then, it would have been unimaginable that you could be more righteous than them. But Jesus isn't just telling you to be more righteous. In the Greek, he says you have to be exceedingly more righteous. means Jesus is not impressed with the Pharisees. He's not impressed with the scribes and their man-made forms of law keeping. We have to exceedingly surpass them. And one thing that I mentioned a couple sermons ago that I want to remind us of is this verse. Chapter 5, verse 20 is the thesis for the entire Sermon on the Mount. For the rest of the sermon, Jesus is showing us what it looks like for our righteousness to be better than theirs. You know, he'll quote the law and then say, but I tell you, he's letting us know what it really means. And if we follow it, yes, our righteousness is far greater than theirs. The way we live is far more faithful. Now, this brings us to the second thing that's profound. Because the Pharisees and the scribes reject Jesus as the Messiah, they don't have the eyes to see how he fills the whole room with light. They don't have the eyes to see what it really means by him fulfilling it. So they miss the deeper meaning of the law. And in so doing, they do break the least of the commandments. And they do teach others to break the least of the commandments. Because at a minimum, they're commanded to listen to the prophet that Moses said would come. And they don't listen to him. So they are breaking the commands. But, but it's, it's even more than that. They add these extra man-made rules as if the letters and the strokes of the letters need their help. That also is to break them and to teach others to break them. Furthermore, they were so focused on outward obedience that they missed the heart of the law. Hey, I didn't touch that woman, so I'm fine. Well, were you lusting after her? Yeah, but I'm not an adulterer. Hold on. Tenth commandment says don't covet your neighbor's wife. You are an adulterer. See, they were missing the point with all this because they were only focusing on the external. In addition to that, and we'll see this throughout the book of Matthew, they had loopholes that would tighten some laws and make them beyond their intent, but then other loopholes that completely got them out of other laws, like having to take care of their elderly parents. They would, they would get small things right like tithing, but then miss the big things like justice. 
which Jesus will bring up in Matthew 23. So my point is, people were impressed with the scribes and the Pharisees, but Jesus wasn't because they don't keep the law as he intended. They do break the least of the commands, and they teach others to do the same. But if they would repent and believe in the Messiah, Jesus, then they would see how the law is filled up by him, and they would live rightly. But as long as they refuse, they will continue to pervert the letters and the strokes of the word, and they would deny both the least and the greatest of the commandments. And as such, they won't enter the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, if if we do the same, then we're proving we're just like them, and we don't really believe in Jesus. And so that's why he gives such a stern warning there. In these passages, 19 and 20, Jesus is condemning two types of extreme heresies. One is antinomianism, which means living without the law. Verse 19, he's saying, if you break these and teach others, no good, right? But then in verse 20, he's condemning legalism, where you add a whole bunch of man-made stuff um, to, to try to keep it. And that's why he's saying, no, don't be like the Pharisees and the scribes. Instead, By faith, we're to let Jesus show us what the law really means and how we're to really keep it. And then he promises that our righteousness will exceedingly surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the rest of the sermon is him just showing us how. He's going to bring up key points from the law and he'll tell you what it really means to keep it. And he's going to prove that the Pharisees' obsession with just what's on the outside of the cup does not cut it. We have to clean the inside. And that's why this verse is the thesis of the whole Sermon on the Mount. And one more thing on that. Chapter 5, verse 17, the verse we started with, is the start of an inclusio. Now, I've been throwing that word at you a lot. It's bookends. The end of the inclusio is chapter 7, verse 12. What unites the two is the phrase, the law and the prophets. So what that means is everything between these two verses all goes together. So verse 17 is telling us about the law. Everything all the way to chapter 7, verse 12 is telling us how to keep it. So again, if the law is set aside, then so is the entire Sermon on the Mount, which would not make any sense. So all that covers the text and its exposition. The one thing that it drives home is the law in some way is still binding in light of the coming of Christ. It means that those other passages need to be understood in a way that brings it in harmony with this one. And it can be done. Now, the reason why there's so many different positions is because people disagree on the best way to bring them into harmony. Uh, And I think when I preached through Romans, I think I presented a way that that works, but again, can't go over that again. Now, the temptation would be just to end this sermon and and leave you guys in uh, an absolute mess because, again, all I've shown is that we are supposed to, in some way, keep the law. But then how? I'm like, see ya, have fun, figure this out. But I think what I'll try to do is, is give us a way that I think makes sense with this. And, you know, if you brought tomatoes and cabbage, you could send them my way after. But first, let me tell you what is not an option at all, okay? Dispensationalists and Lutherans teach that Christ's coming completely set aside the law of Moses and most of the Old Testament, Now, the way dispensationalists argue this is they'll say that Jesus set Israel aside and he started to work with a new group called the church. So he paused Israel, he paused their law, and he'll keep working with the church until he raptures the church. After he raptures the church, then he brings back Israel and starts using the law of Moses again, and that continues till the end of the millennium. Okay, but for the church, it's nada when it comes to the law. It doesn't apply to us at all. 
Now, Lutherans will reject all that stuff about Israel and the church having a different destiny, but they will agree that the Old Testament and its laws, they're, they're done. They've been ended. Now, both the Dispies and the Lutherans say that we are under the law of Christ. And the way they define the law of Christ is they say it's everything that's commanded in the New Testament. If it's not in the New Testament, then we don't have to keep it because that's just the law of Moses. But again, these positions are off the table because the text clearly said the law is not abolished until heaven and earth pass away. We're still standing on earth. Some of you still look up with your telescopes. The heavens are still there. So those can't be viable positions. We also have to consider what Paul tells us about Scripture in a passage that's dear to most of our hearts. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, that is such an important passage. When Paul wrote this, the New Testament was not fully written yet. It certainly wasn't collected as a group of writings in a canon yet. So what is he talking about when he means all scripture? The law and the prophets. Now, once the New Testament's completed and collected in a canon, yes, this verse applies to it. It's God-breathed, and it does these four things. But for the original audience, to people who lived 40 years after Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, Paul is saying here that the Old Testament, which includes the law, he's not saying some scripture, all scripture is inspired. That means both the law and the prophets. Now, nobody denies that, but the second part of the passage gets ignored. What does the all scripture do? Let me bring it up again. It does four things. It teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, and it trains in righteousness. The result of those four things is it equips the Christian for every good work. How could it do that if it has no authority over us? Right? So it, it, it's still there, right? If the law of Moses teaches us true doctrine and rebukes false doctrine and corrects bad behavior and trains us in righteous behavior and all of this equips us, then in some sense, we are still learning from the law. We're still keeping the law. Otherwise, how could it authoritatively teach, rebuke, correct, and train us? And again, we know that the law itself is what's written on our heart, and so that's the context in which it's going to do it. But we still have a problem, right? You're like, okay, you, you keep saying all this, and I see it in the scripture, but we keep running into this wall. What's the wall? Well, we don't actually keep the Old Testament exactly as they did back in ancient Israel. We don't do the sacrifices. We don't follow the purification laws of unclean and clean, and many more things, kosher food, all that stuff. So... If the law still teaches, rebukes, and corrects, and trains us, but we don't do those things, how do we understand this? Well, this brings us to two other positions that try to answer this, and both of them fall under the umbrella. <clears throat> they fall under the umbrella of Reformed theology. The most common Reformed position, and most of you are probably familiar with this, is that you could take the law and divide it into three parts, a threefold division, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. Now, the moral law refers to God's universal laws that are true in all places and all times. And even without the Bible, the Gentiles know this. Like they know from looking at nature that you're not supposed to murder and steal and commit adultery and stuff like that. So those are the moral laws. They're written in the law of Moses, but also everybody in some sense has access to them. 
Then the second kind are the civil laws, which were the, the government laws or state laws of ancient Israel that deal with crime and punishment and having an orderly society. And then third, you have the ceremonial laws that deal with worship and sacrifice, like the temple and, and all that kind of stuff. What they say is that Christ fulfilled the law in such a way that the civil and ceremonial law is set aside, and so we could still learn from it, we could still build principles off of it, and we must, but we're not obligated to it. The only one we're obligated to is the moral law. Now, the other position, which is related to this one, is called theonomy. It also holds the three division, but the difference is where they differ with the, the most common reform position today is they only believe the ceremonial is gone, but the civil and the moral are still in effect, right? And, and the reason why they think that is they believe that God's intent was that the Israelite theocracy would spread over the whole earth under the authority and rule of the Israelite king who we call the Messiah. And so the church's mission through the Great Commission is to extend his rule over all the nations. And in so doing, yeah, we don't keep the ceremonial because Jesus fulfilled all that. But as the church, we practice the moral law and we teach the society and the state to um, enforce the civil law. And they don't mean that like, Every detail of how it's written in the Old Testament is how you apply it in our day, that, that you have to, to think about it. Well, how would this work in our day? But the point is, the state is obligated to figure that out and create a just society off of that. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I am sympathetic to both of these positions because they both find a way to show that the law applies, but they explain why we don't keep everything exactly like the ancient Israelites did. But I, I reject these as the final answer, even though I hold to a lot of it, but not all of it. And here's why. The Bible never divides the law into moral, ceremonial, and civil. In fact, that idea first emerged in the Middle Ages, and it does not predate Thomas Aquinas. So nobody thought of that until the 1200s. What the Bible does tell us is you have weightier laws and you have lighter laws. Now, some people will say, well, that's how we get there. The weighty laws are the moral ones and the lighter ones are the other ones. But the problem is when you look at some of the weighty laws, they fall in all three of those categories. And when you look at some of the lighter laws, they fall in all three of those categories. So it doesn't necessarily work. Furthermore, the scripture always presents the law as a unit. It's just the Torah, the whole thing, the law. Even Jesus presented it as a unit here, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter. Okay, So because of that, I just don't think it, it necessarily works. And when it comes to um, the theonomic position, though I'm sympathetic to it, and I do think that where we need to get our ideas of government should be from this and rather from the world, I don't think necessarily that the mission of the church is to bring all of the world under a theocratic Israel in a sense. I think it's a little different. I think the mission's slightly different from that, and that's where I would differ from them. But otherwise, like on 99%, we're singing the same song and playing the same tune on the pipe. It's just a little different of how we get there. So if these positions fall short in some way, then what do I think the answer is? I'll try to keep it as simple as I can. The Old Testament presents two kinds of laws, apodictic and casuistic. Now, it doesn't use those words, but everybody in all the positions agree that these are the two kinds of laws that you'll find there. And, and what does it mean? Apodictic just means universal statements, what they would call the moral law. 
Okay, things like thou shall not kill, thou shall not steal, uh, don't have any other gods before, before the one true God. Those are apodictic laws. Casuistic laws are case examples. They begin with when and if. So if you dig a pit and you don't cover it and someone falls into it, X, Y, and Z is going to happen, right? Or if a man suspects that his wife has cheated on him, go to the priests and they will do X, Y, and Z. You could tell they're casuistic because they have if and when. It's telling you what to do in specific circumstances. Now, here, here's where we connect these two. These casuistic or if-when laws are all real-life examples of how to apply the apodictic laws, the universal ones. For example, you shall not murder. That's apodictic. That's universal. There's a lot of the 613 laws of Moses that are casuistic explanations of what it means not to murder, how to apply it. For example, it'll say, if a man hates his neighbor, and premeditates killing him and kills him, that man's to be executed. And then we'll say, if a man didn't previously hate his neighbor, but in a fit of rage still strikes him so as to kill him, it's still murder, execute him. But then it says, if the man's working and it's an accident and the axe head flies off and hits his neighbor and kills him, it's not murder because he didn't hate him in the heart. So don't count that one as murder. But if a man has an ox that likes to attack people and other animals and he doesn't restrain that ox and that ox kills somebody, then kill both the ox and the owner because that's murder. But if... The ox has never attacked anyone before. He's just a swell little ox. But this day, he went crazy like cocaine bear and kills somebody. Then only the ox dies, but not the owner. By the way, I've never seen that movie, but the preview told me enough. Um, but all of those are case examples of how to apply you shall not murder. And there's quite a few of them. And same with thievery. You shall not steal, right? Apodictic. But then it'll tell you if a thief steals, when he gets caught, he pays back 20%. If a thief steals a person, meaning he kidnaps, he's a man stealer, then he's to be executed. This, the casuistic laws tell us how we're supposed to apply this. So my point is that those kind of laws are the majority of what we find in the Old Testament. They're case examples of how they would have applied in ancient Israel. I believe we're still under the apodictic laws, but the application might look the same and it might look different in some cases. For example, I'll tell you how it would look different, but we're still keeping it today. Back then, roofs were flat. And you did a lot of activity on your roofs. And so the law says build a rail on the top of your roof so that no one falls off of it and you have blood guilt. Now, blood guilt means you're guilty of murder. So how do you prevent that? Build the rail. That's how you love your neighbors yourself. Now, do we have roofs like that today? How many of you spend hours every day on your roof? Okay, nobody's hands went up. So by you not building the rail on your roof, are you violating this law? No. How would you apply this today? Some of you have swimming pools. Put a fence around it so that a little kid can't fall in it. You are keeping this exact same law, really in the same, not exactly the same way, but close enough. You're, you're, you're getting the heart of it. And so my point is, it takes a lot of thinking and a lot of reflection on our part to figure out how to obey all these in our context. Some of them, we will obey exactly as they were written. Some of them, like the rails on the roof, we have to figure out, no, how does this one work for us today? And this is why it takes thought. Like Christianity is not a lazy religion. We're not supposed to be lazy thinkers. We're supposed to meditate on what day and night? The law 
day and night. And what that means is we're thinking about it. We're musing on it. We're trying to figure out how do we apply these things in our life. And of course, the driving principle is the first great commandment and the second. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, the Bible tells us how to love God. Read the scripture, obey him, worship him the way he says, that's how you love him. Tells us how to love your neighbor, put a rail on your roof so they don't fall off. You know, those kind of things. So we love God and we love our neighbor specifically through what we read in the scripture. So that's how we apply this. But I know there's still one more question looming. What about those sacrifices and purification and stuff like that? Well, Christ so fulfilled those things that the way that you keep them now is just by going directly to God through Christ in prayer. You are cleansed. You are forgiven. Okay? Now, when it comes to things like circumcision and Sabbath keeping and kosher food laws, those things are fulfilled in Christ and the Gentiles are not supposed to keep those. And we know that because there's a whole chapter about that in Acts chapter 15. And of course, there's reasons we could come away with that. They, they weren't given to them, but they were given to Israel and its generations forever. And so you have that council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 saying, Gentiles, don't do that. You don't have to keep those. You're not mediated into the kingdom through those kind of things. It's only through the king. So when Paul's writing Galatians, why is he so angry? The Gentiles are circumcising, they're keeping Sabbath and all that kind of stuff. And he's saying, stop, you don't need to keep the law this way. But that same Paul, who is so grumpy in Galatians for good reason, that same Paul circumcises Timothy because he has Jewish ancestry. And we see that in Acts chapter 16, verse 3. That same Paul takes a Nazarite vow in Acts chapter 18, verse 18 and shaves his head. Okay, that's part of the Nazarite vow. He wasn't doing this to minister to Jews. This was a personal thing he was doing at Kengrae. He observed Passover according to Acts chapter 20, verse 6. He celebrated Pentecost or was trying to celebrate Pentecost in Acts chapter 20, verse 16. And by the way, all of those are written well after Galatians. And then in Acts chapter 21, verse 24, James makes it clear, hey, Paul, we know you still keep the law, and we know you tell Jewish believers to still keep the law. We specifically wrote that Gentiles don't have to keep those things, like circumcision and, and, and stuff like that. So go do what we tell you to do, and then that will show everybody that the, that the rumors people are spreading against you are false. So the point is, that happened after Paul wrote Romans. So my point is, by Paul, his, the very way he lived his life, he did still keep things like circumcision and the feasts of Israel, and he still sometimes kept vows, which would be ceremonial, but he would not let the Gentiles do it because it sends the wrong message. It sends the message that Gentiles have to become Jews to be saved, and he won't let that. Jews and Gentiles are co-heirs and equal before God. Both are justified by grace alone through faith alone. Both keep the law, but in slightly different ways. The Gentiles keep all the apodictic laws and figure out how to apply them in these casuistic ways in our context. Jews, we do the same, but we're also going to keep some of the things that keep our Jewish identity intact. Otherwise, you would never know we're Jews. If we have to give all these up, in a sense, we stop being Jewish. And nobody would be able to look at the church and say, oh, Jew and Gentile are one. And likewise, if Gentiles have to become Jews, nobody would be able to see Gentiles in the church. The way you could see both is if we all keep the apodictic laws and casuistic laws in the way I mentioned, but then the Jews keep some of those identity markers. But even then, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 gives them the option, if they're ministering to those not under the law, to even not be under the law. 
But to say that Jews can't keep those things is wrong. But to say that Gentiles need to keep those things is also wrong. And so I think that's the most complicated part of our law discussion is is how it might look slightly different between a Jewish believer and a Gentile believer. That's why I'm hoping, based on what I said, that if I put a mezuzah on my door or if I ever decide to wear tassels because it helps me think about the law, or when you see me building my my tabernacle in my backyard, that you're not going to be like, Judaizer, get them. Hopefully, that won't be the case because I believe, for me, I'm imitating what the apostles did and that it's appropriate for me. But I have the choice to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, And so I don't know if that makes sense, but hopefully it does. And I will only then offer one more point on the topic of the law, okay? One last thing. The whole time I've been saying law, you've probably been thinking commands, regulations. But the word Torah actually just means instruction, and it refers to all five books of the first five books of the Bible. That's more than just rules. It gives us the story of our God and his plan of redemption. So why would we ever set that aside? We shouldn't. Psalm 119 tells us in many places that the law teaches us to be wise, it teaches us to stay away from sin, and it helps us please God. And so we often have this this problem in our head where we think law versus gospel. It's not law versus gospel. The law points to the gospel. That way when the gospel comes, then it shines the light in the whole room and we understand the grace that we're saved by, but we also use it to see what the law truly means and then live according to it in in the, the most full sense possible. That's why I titled the sermon Law Through the Gospel rather than the law and the gospel or the law versus the gospel, okay? And so hopefully that all makes sense. Oh, and I'll add one more thing. If... Uh, The gospel takes everything to the next level and it shows you and me how we could apply the law at a deeper and better way no matter what nation we're from. And for my theonomist brothers, you're right. It should inform our thinking about what civic laws we should be demanding from our government. Because if you don't believe that, then what you're saying is, well, who should decide the laws? Oh, fallen man with their philosophy and their God-rejecting reasoning. No, no. What we need is right here. It's what we believe about counseling. It's what we believe about apologetics. It is what we should believe about also civil discourse and what laws should be enacted. We need to be in the word thinking about that and electing politicians that favor that. So anyhow, hopefully all that makes sense about Christ not abolishing the law but fulfilling it. Hopefully it makes sense of how we are able to use the law to teach, rebuke, correct, and train ourselves. And hopefully, if anything, it helps you see that you're selling yourself short If you never read the Old Testament, and if you never read the first five books of the Old Testament, it is the foundation of our faith and our ethics. We need to meditate on his law day and night and think about how it applies in all circumstances of our lives. That's how we fulfill what Jesus is saying here. And that's how our righteousness exceeds those of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he will give us example after example. Now, I know I hit us all with some complicated stuff this morning, and I'm sorry for going a little long. It was impossible to avoid, Uh, but this topic is important. It really is. And so I'm hoping you give me a little grace on this because I tried to explain probably the most complex subject of our faith that's argued among Orthodox believers, and uh, you can't do it full justice in, in one shot. What I'm hoping is I didn't confuse anybody. If I did, it's, it's my fault. I was going to blame Albert, but he's not here. So it's my fault 
fault if I confused you. And, uh, and I do hope that as we read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, that we're just going to see more and more examples of how this works, like how what I'm talking about works, how Jesus takes the law to the next level. And then hopefully we will all go and do likewise. Now for any unbelievers here, this in-house Christian debate may or may not have interested you, but here's what I would say to you. If anything you're going to focus on, focus on the fact in verse 17, Jesus said he came to fulfill the entire Old Testament. He fulfilled the details down to the events, ceremonies, and everything. For one man to fulfill all of that, he has to be who he says he is, which is the son of God. If, if we just took the prophecies alone, right, just the predictions about him, he fulfilled 109 of them in his first coming. And, and these are things that you could verify. These are facts. The odds of just one man fulfilling even eight of 109 prophecies is one in 100 million billion. That is a million times more than the total number of people who've ever lived on the earth. And I've said this before. That's like taking the state of Texas, covering it two feet high with silver dollars. You mark one of them. You blindfold somebody. And on their first try, they pick that one you marked. That's the odds of one man fulfilling eight prophecies. Yet Jesus fulfilled 109. Mathematician Peter Stoner calculated the odds of someone fulfilling 48, which is still less than half. And it's this crazy number. It's like one in a trillion, 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 trillion. I wasn't just saying trillion to say it. That's how many times you have to say trillion. And that's less than half. But Jesus fulfilled 109. And then I'm hoping what you saw is on top of that, it wasn't just 109 predictions. He fulfilled all the details of Israel's history and all the types and shadows there. When you add those to it, the odds just keep going up and up and up. You cannot say this about any other religious leader, philosopher, politician, or anyone. Jesus is the one name under heaven given to a man by which we must be saved. And if you reject him, you are betting on foolish odds. And so what I'm calling on you to do is turn away from your sins and believe on Jesus with all of your heart and you'll be saved. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Confess it with your mouth. That it will, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. It's that simple that he's the God man who came and fulfilled the law perfectly to give us the credit of it. And then he died on the cross to pay our penalty and he rose on the third day. If you trust him with your salvation, you will be saved. What we're going to do is we're going to pray and we're going to get ready for the Lord's Supper. But as I'm praying, you could pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm turning from my sins and I believe on you. And if you mean it, you'll be saved. And then please come talk to me after or any of the leaders here and we would gladly uh, walk you through that. But that being said, let's uh, go to our Lord in prayer. God, I do pray that um, what I taught today accurately reflects your word. This is a hard one, and I know, Lord, that teachers will be subject to a stricter judgment. And I don't want to be more strictly judged, Lord. So if I did make an error, Lord, it wasn't intentional. But I do pray, Lord, that we all just humbly approach this subject and we lean on what you said, Lord Jesus, and we figure out how to let your whole word, not just one third of it, but your whole word to teach us and correct us and rebuke us and to train us so that we would be equipped.
And so, Lord, I pray there's been more light rather than heat and, and not confusion added to this. And that, Lord, we understand this the, the best that we can. And we know we'll understand it fully uh, when you come back for us, God. So we just thank you for everything. We love you. May we live in a way that's pleasing to you. And please, Lord, save those who are lost. And we pray this all in Jesus, our Lord's name. Amen.